And what we're seeing here is an effort to threaten and cower reporters. It won't work, but that's what we're seeing in order to keep these stories from appearing. Your question, Craig, about trust and credibility of the press, the media consistently forgets that a lot of these wounds, too many of these wounds, are self-inflicted. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court, have a book out titled The Sled and How to Get Sued. Well, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Lex Reception and Blue Jay Legal. Lex Reception is a close-knit team of virtual receptionists dedicated to professionalism, warmth, and a 24-7 availability for law firms and attorneys. And Blue Jay Legal's AI-powered foresight platforms accurately predict court outcomes and accelerate case research by using factors instead of keywords. You can learn more at bluejlegal.com. That's blue, the letter J, legal.com, bluejlegal.com. Well, in response to an article published on August 27th by Washington Post's reporter David Farenthold on how the United States Secret Service has spent more than $900,000 at Trump properties during Trump's presidency, White House spokesperson Judge Deere said, quote, the Washington Post is blatantly interfering with the business relationships of the Trump organization and it must stop. Please be advised that we are building up a very large dossier on the many false David Farenthold and other stories as they are a disgrace to journalism and the American people. And as people may know, David Farenthold has had a long history with the president, covering the president, the Trump Organization, and its business relationships for many years. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to be discussing this alleged dossier, its implications for freedom of the press, the current and historic relationships between the White House and journalists. To do that, we've got a great show for you today. Our first guest is Professor Stephen Gillers. He's a professor of law at NYU School of Law, been there since 1978, and served as vice dean from 1999 through 2004. Stephen also wrote a book titled Journalism Under Fire, Protecting the Future of Investigative Reporting. That book was published by Columbia University Press. And welcome to the show, Stephen. Thank you. And next, we have a returning guest, attorney Charles Glassier. Charles spent 14 years as the global media counsel for Bloomberg News, where he was responsible for pre-publication review, ethics issues, and training more than 2,200 reporters in more than 120 bureaus around the world on legal and ethical issues and a wide-ranging journalistic fundamentals focusing on investigative and business news. He's the author and editor of the book, The International Libel and Privacy Handbook, the fifth edition to 2020 this year from LexisNexis. And welcome back to the show, Charles. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, Stephen, I'm going to throw this one to you first to kind of give us some context and some background behind the relationship between reporters and the government and what the context of the freedom of the press means in relationship to the allegations that we're talking about today. The press and David Farenthold are doing their job when they report on Trump's business practices. The use of the word interfering with Trump's business is simply incorrect. 
The public has a right to know what Farenthold discovers about the president's business practices. It relates to his competence, his trustworthiness, and it's just interesting. Uh, so the notion that there is interference, as, as Deere uh, said, is simply, is simply wrong. And the First Amendment, of course, allows Farenthold and protects Farenthold and the Washington Post when it digs into Trump's businesses. Well, it sounds exactly right. Yes. And let's turn next to Charles. You've got a deep background in the news and as an attorney. And I noticed something about Deere's comment that I wanted to drill down a little bit deeper into. He commented that the interference is with the Trump organization as opposed to the Trump as president. Do you find any distinction in that? And if not, who are we talking about here? Who are the real oh. players? To begin with, although to be fair, more than a few news outfits commingle the camp, and this is not just with Trump, you know, the campaign, the candidate's private life, the candidate's business history, previous record, they all sort of get blurred together. But I have to say that the, how do I put this? It's much ado about nothing in a lot of ways. There's no prior restraint allowed in this country, except in, you know, the most unbelievable circumstances, you know, plans during wartime, that sort of thing. And the Trump organization could not stop the Post from publishing something any more than they could stop a, a thunderstorm. I mean, the Post has done that stance before, as you know, uh, with the, uh, the Pentagon Papers. And so, you know, I have to say, though, that looking at this issue, it's important to sort of take a reality check and see what's what's going on behind all this as a practical matter. And if you think about it, this is Trump doing his his eye poking, trolling, whatever you want to call it. And CNN took the bait. Marty Baron took the bait. When you compile a dossier on someone, you do it. You don't announce that you're going to do it. That's just harassment. That's just not in the legal sense, but that's just annoying, right? So that's that's sort of my first observation. It's Trump doing his Trump thing. In addition, uh, Stephen had mentioned the First Amendment, where I do think it becomes critical. And again, Professor, help me out if you think I'm off target here. Carried to its extreme, it does raise serious Fourth Amendment issues or can if abused, don't you think? Oh, it can if abused, but yeah. that, that kind of assumes the, the issue. Uh, I think that any, yeah. sub, any subject of a, of a news story or a repeat subject of a news story, as Trump and Trump-related entities are, have a right to challenge the accuracy of the news story. We can call that a dossier, or we can call it a file, dossier. Yeah has a more nefarious. Sinister, yeah. Yeah, but I would call it a file. And I think that if uh, Farenthold is writing things that Trump believes are inaccurate or unfair, he has a right to compile information to challenge it. That's part of the give and take of the profession of journalism. Do you think he has the right to use the strong arm of the law to do it? That is, say, Justice Department or FBI? Well, Deer is not the Justice Department or the FBI. But what I hear, to be fair to Deer, what I hear him to be saying, the best, the best light you can put on what Deer is saying is, look, we believe that you're biased and we believe that you're wrong. 
And those are traditional ways of challenging the credibility of a witness. What a journalist is, is a witness, albeit not in court. And ways you challenge witnesses is by pointing out that they're wrong or that they're untrustworthy. So if what the White House is doing is saying, we're collecting information that will prove that your facts are wrong or that you should not be trusted, I think that's within their prerogative. That's something that any organization would do when the subject of a of a harsh news story. Do you think there's any difference here in the given the fact that there's an outside entity involved in this? Like the Pentagon Papers were largely about the history of the Vietnam War, and that was a, a big concern for people. But here we have not only the presidency, but we also have the Trump Organization, the owners of Mar-a-Lago, supposedly where this $900,000 is spent. Does the existence of an outside business entity threatening the Washington Post or Fahrenheit play into this at all? I mean, I have to tell you, it, it happens in, in the newsroom. This happens every day. As a matter of fact, I am very the proud recipient of an insane screed. The Washington Post wrote about it before he was a candidate. Trump wrote a personal letter to me that was completely bananas and threatening, you know, six ways from Sunday. Uh, he actually, by the way, he does refer to himself in the third person which is already a sign of, you know, something odd. But companies threaten all the time. Entities threaten all the time. That's not, you know, that's, that's, you know, dog bites man. What's, what's interesting here, to me anyway, is that uh, I had referred to Marty Baron and particularly CNN really taking the bait. If you read the CNN file about this, they use the modifier in the second graph, astonishing that Trump would do this. Uh, look, I absolutely do not think any journalist should be subjected to you know, covert uh, surveillance under any circumstances. That said, let's take a look back. This has been going on a long time and way predating Trump and even predating Obama. I mean, to be sure, ask uh, the folks at the AP how they feel about having their communications intercepted by the Department of Justice, or James Rison having his material stolen, or Cheryl Atkinson, who actually had her computer provably broken into, and it tracks back to a, a federal government. So it's not astonishing. Some aspects of doing journalism, I mean, when I was a reporter and covered Senator Kennedy's 1980 run, I was required to go through Secret Service vetting. So there's a dossier on me, you know, and it's just an old, old story. And lit, I mean, Nixon had the whole enemies list, as you remember, you know, we, Stephen, I, you were probably on it. <laughs> can I, can I, um, can I bring it back to the immediate event? I mean, we, we don't want to mix apples and kumquats here. Uh, <laughs> stealing documents is a different caliber, different kind of problem. But let's not bury the lead. What is, what is troublesome about the, the Washington Post story and the New York Times story on the same subject is not that a subject of a news story tries to show, tries to collect information showing that it, would, it should not be trustworthy for the legitimate reasons that it should not be trustworthy. If so, what is nefarious here is the suggestion that the information that is being collected is not about 
those legitimate questions, namely, is this story trustworthy? Is this reporter trustworthy? This sounds an extortion. What Deere is suggesting and the unnamed Trump supporters are suggesting is that they have dirt. They have embarrassing information about reporters and editors and their families that they're prepared to release publicly, maybe anonymously publicly, the reporters, <laughs> if the reporters continue to do their job. That's what is troublesome here. Not that they wish to challenge the story's accuracy. Stephen, is there a right to have a Freedom of Information Act request to find out what's in that dossier? And for that matter, can we find out what's in Charles's dossier? Well, of course, you could have the request, and I imagine that the White House would find one of the non-exemptions to Freedom of Information Act requests to be applicable, in which case it will refuse to give it to you. And in the year 2024, you might get some of it. So it's not <laughs> going to be it's yeah. not going to be very helpful. Look, what, what's going on here is part of a larger pattern. It's even in its perverse way, a brilliant pattern. What Trump understands is that information is power. And if he can control it, if he can deny, for example, Congress information, which he does, he does not share information with Congress. He does not allow executive branch people to testify except on occasion. If he can undermine the credibility of another source of information, namely the press, he is stronger or he sees himself as being stronger. But he is. If he, if he can create public distrust and critical arguments about him, that's his objective. He has a private company. It doesn't have to report any of its internal business operations publicly because there are no shareholders. He understands that containing information, including his tax returns, is power. And what we're seeing here is an effort to th threaten and cower reporters, it won't work, but that's what we're seeing, in order to keep these stories from appearing. Before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break and hear a message from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Predict legal outcomes with Blue Jay Legal's Foresight Platforms. Using AI to analyze thousands of cases and administrative rulings, Blue Jay Legal can predict with 90% accuracy on average how a judge would likely rule in your case. Plus, you can research by factors and outcomes to find the relevant cases in seconds. Stay ahead of the curve and learn more at BlueJLegal.com. That's blue, the letter J, legal.com. BlueJLegal.com. 80% of callers who reach voicemail hang up. Hiring an answering service means that you never miss a lead. Lex Reception can take your calls live, handle legal intake, and schedule appointments in a professional manner for less than the cost of hiring an in-house employee. There are no contracts, and the service is quick and easy to set up. For 50% off your first month's service, visit LexReception.com forward slash lawyer to lawyer. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and with us today is Professor Stephen Gillers, professor of law at NYU School of Law and the author of the book, Journalism Under Fire, Protecting the Future of Investigative Reporting. And attorney Charles Glasser, an expert in international media law and author and editor of the International Libel and Privacy Handbook. And right before the break, we were talking about Trump's, and how really it's true how this conversation probably needs to morph into Trump's control of information. Charles, I know you wanted to make a point. 
Professor Giller's absolutely correct insofar as if uh, this, look, uh, let's not mince words. The man is a bully, for lack of a better word. Trump is a bully. And that has been his style in business and whatever for a long time. And it's a certain archetype of CEO in New York. All that being said, I kind of doubt the efficacy. And I'm not by any means suggesting that Professor Gilders is overreacting. I'm not. I think that Fahrenheit and Marty Baron and all reporters and their lawyers should be on guard against, you know, attempts at intimidation. That said, I think a lot of it is is just his his meaningless bluster. It's like his Twitter account. It's 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 just gibberish, really, in a lot of cases. It's just gibberish. Stephen, what what has this done to the American public's trust of information coming from the federal government and from reporters? Well, one would hope that it would undermine the credibility of the White House, but I'm not so sure that that's true. It may be, regrettably, it may be that the fake news challenges and the denial of information has, to some extent, worked to the White House's benefit. We should also Look at the legal angle here, because this is about lawyers. If these threats are coming from a government official, which Deere is, there is a very likely claim that could be filed in federal court, a civil rights claim, that the ability of Americans, journalists, to exercise their First Amendment rights is being compromised by the threats. The government can't do that. The government can't threaten you unless you turn over your property. Well, your right to report and your reputation as a reporter is property. And so there is a possible civil rights claim here. And there's a possible extortion claim as well. If I say to you, unless you stop doing something you're legally allowed to do, I will report your extramarital affair. Or I will. That's extortion. That is clearly extortion. And if they're saying to Fahrenheit and others, unless you stop digging, we are going to embarrass you. We're going to embarrass your family. We're going to embarrass your colleagues at the Post. That's extortion also. And so I think they're on on risky territory in making those threats. Charles, have you seen this before? Have you seen this in other presidential campaigns and in other presidential uh, terms? I think your 1983 angle is interesting, <laughs> but uh, Civil Rights Act. But just for the record, uh, U.S. v. Paul makes it clear you, uh, a, a reputation is not a uh, fungible right as far as Civil Rights Act goes. That's been tried before. Yeah, so that's one thing. But the extortion thing, on the other hand, probably has more legs. That being said, I wish there were more, you know, legalese that that I can import into it, but this is where history becomes more more important. Now, I want to make it abundantly clear and I'm sure you accept my my sincerity here. I don't condone this at all, you know, but let's not kid ourselves. Politicians at all levels have their communications experts try and wheedle, threaten, bribe and or manipulate reporters into shaping a story or ignoring a story. And I have to say something very important here, and that is that your question, Craig, about trust and credibility of the press, the media 
consistently forgets that a lot of these wounds, too many of these wounds are self-inflicted. I mean, the whole James Bennett fiasco where the editorial page editor was fired for not reading an editorial. (laughs) I want that kind of job, you know? And it turns out that, as you probably know, the Second Circuit has remanded Sarah Palin's case about a New York Times editorial. And Eric Wempel of the Washington Post wrote a very clear, fair, and concise article about, frankly, how the Times genuinely screwed up. And in my classes, I teach a, a section called Fake News versus Wrong News. And there is a big difference. But so Trump says it's fake. I say it's wrong. Okay, there's a difference. And, and as we all know, the First Amendment is the right to be wrong for the right reason. Can I just respond to the um, reputation issue? Yes. This is not simply a case of harming Fahrenheit's reputation. This is a case involving a threat, so he foregoes his First Amendment rights. So the the okay. property the property at issue is not purely reputation. The property at issue is the right to speak without being threatened for speaking. It's certainly chilling. Oh yeah, I, and maybe there is a prior restraint angle to it. I mean, in a way, I mean, making somebody shut up. Right? Isn't that that? And, that's and that what seems to be the purpose is. of the quote. But I wanted to go back to Stephen for a moment and ask a question because what you raised, Charles, really kind of puts the issues here. You talked, Stephen, about apples and kumquats. Supposedly, journalists have this kind of ethics code that they're supposed to follow. So there, that exists. The canon exists. But the president's equivalent doesn't exist. Is that really an apples and kumquat situation? Does the president have an ethical responsibility to tell the <laughs> truth? Well, there is. There are government uh, ethics and government acts, but the major constraint on a president is law. The problem is that the law has been unable to contain Trump's excesses, either because no one has the standing to challenge some of his activity, or because the challenges take months and months and years. So repeated appeals to the Supreme Court where a matter can sit for quite some time effectively mute the ability of the court to contain him. What we're learning with Trump is that the idea of checks and balances doesn't work when you simply refuse to obey norms or even laws because of the toothlessness of the legal remedy given the length it takes cases to be decided. Well, gentlemen, it looks like we've just about reached the end of the program. This has been a wonderful discussion. I'd like to take the opportunity now to invite you both to share your final thoughts as well as whatever contact information you'd like to provide. Charles, we'll turn to you first. Well, thank you again. Uh, and, and thank you, Stephen. As always, I, uh, we should disclose to our listeners that I was a student of his at NYU, and I still carry a lot of that knowledge with me. I, I'm still of the mind that, yes, it's outrageous, and no, an honorable president would not and should not behave like this, talk like this. But presidents have had pretty bad relationships with the press. We forget that Harry Truman wrote a letter threatening to punch a reporter, and he meant it. And the, the reporter's sin was giving his daughter, giving Truman's daughter a bad review. She was apparently a singer of some sort. 
And there's there's a letter of, on White House stationery. If I ever see you, you're going to need a jock strap when I'm done with you. So be that as it may. Uh, and uh, Trump is certainly no Harry Truman. We'll all agree there. I think the press is partly to blame. I think it's I think that the press needs to stop chasing the laser pointer and overreacting with a hyperbole. Uh, Fahrenheit is right. And, and Professor Gillers is right. And it, it is an attempt to to shut him up. It is a shame that that's not a codified ethical restraint on the executive branch. Unless it's unless it's called extortion or a violation of civil rights. Well, I you know I, I this is not a surprise, and it's not the most egregious thing that the Trump administration has done to undermine the credibility of the press. But also, I think we have to recognize that. Powerful news organizations, and and the Post is, and the Times is, and the Journal is, they go into that sandbox and they have to be prepared to be counterpunched. It just comes with the territory. And one hopes that and expects, and I'm confident that none of this will deter the work that they're doing, the important work that they're doing, even more important now that we have a president who lies multiple times a day. Another way of challenging the accuracy of information is simply by claiming it's not true when it is. So we're going to have to live with this for another several months or another four years. And um, hopefully the, uh, the country will survive and return to its former self. Stephen with a P-H dot Gillers, G-I-L-L-E-R-S at N-Y-U dot E-D-U. Great. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. We'd certainly appreciate it. As we wrap up, I'd like to thank our guests, Stephen Gillers and Charles Glasser, for joining us today. It was a pleasure having you both on the show. For our listeners, if you've liked what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. You can join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.